Roxy, I'm sure you know the Pixar movie Inside Out. Of course I do. In fact, I recently watched it on a plane again. Cried a lot. So, as you know, the protagonist has five primary emotions that are personified throughout the movie. Joy, sadness, anger, fear, disgust. My question for you, Mm -hmm. what emotion would you say sits at the control center of our podcast? Well, I want to say joy it's more complex than that maybe we need a a sixth emotion like what do you have in mind Hmm, what's the emotion for smart ass (laughs) yeah i think maybe we should just stick with sass from religion news service this is saved by the city a podcast from two christian women sassing it up on the streets of new york i'm caitlin Beatty, and i'm roxy stone I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary. In a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. We've talked a lot on this podcast about the stranger dynamics of growing up evangelical in the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. We've uh, dissected Adventures in Odyssey, Purity Rings, Rapture-related nightmares, the gamut. <laughs> this week, we will be setting aside some of the cultural analysis and be getting a little more intimate, if you will, and earnest, and share some of our most formative core memories centered on faith. Later on, we'll hear from friend of the podcast, Esau McCauley, about his new book, The Expectations Put on Black Christians, and how the faith of his forebears set him on the path he's on today. But first, going back to Inside Out, I think about this movie all the time. Like, I think it's, like, shaped how I think about personality. And obviously, the movie is very much about memories and how memories, Mm -hmm. like, form our personalities from a very young age in pretty fundamental ways. It's brilliant how the movie visualizes emotions, personality. I love the five islands of Riley's personality. She has Mm -hmm. friendship island, goofball island, hockey island, I think family island. Mm -hmm. What's the fifth one? Honesty honesty like telling the truth being honest and fair Mm -hmm. yeah family friendship goofball hockey and honesty those are good islands so before we get to our earliest faith memories maybe we could do a little tour of our own childhood islands Mm. like what made up tiny roxy and tiny caitlin here we go Enter earnest, vulnerable mode. (laughs) All right, I will go first. And this will not surprise you. Mm. But there's definitely an island in Childhood Roxy that is just for books. (laughs) Yes, this does not surprise me. I read a lot as a little kid. It definitely was like a huge part of who I was and who I became all these stories in my head and I would spend hours and hours and hours reading to the point where my parents would regularly be like, it's nice outside. Go outside. 
play. Yes. <laughs> so then I would take my book outside. <laughs> was that partially to like being introverted? I'm sure that was part of it. I think so. I mean, I also think like imagination or creativity was, you know, I might have made that another island, but I think they were really connected. Like I really loved telling stories too. And I just liked mm-hmm. being in these places that were not where I was. I just loved how books would transport you, you know? Yes. There's a book's island. And, you know, in the movie, some of her personality islands change, but I feel like you probably have many more islands than five, you know, as adults. I hope. But like books is definitely still there. Books remains one. Yeah. There's a lot of characters walking around like Elizabeth Bennett that I'm like, definitely have made big impacts on who I became as a person. Yes. All right. What's one of your islands? Childhood islands. I wrote down like nature island because mm, good. we moved around a lot when I was little and we lived in Monterey, California from when I was like five to eight. My most vivid childhood memories really start in Monterey. And I just have so many mm. memories of us going on hikes and going to the beach and going to the Monterey Bay Aquarium. So you were like in Big Little Lies. yeah slightly different narrative (laughs) for our family gosh i really love that show and it was gorgeous yes they really made monterey look amazing yes a little scary but gorgeous (laughs) i just have vivid memories of feeling joy and wonder being in Mm -hmm. creation essentially like Mm -hmm. with my family but that that was something that felt restorative or exciting even from a young age and I would say that that has remained yeah that's similar to my second island which I would say was the lake Mm. where we went during our summers where my family owned a marina and I've talked about that on here before like my parents were school teachers but then in the summer they operated a marina on a lake that was about an hour away and we moved there and so I loved those long, lazy, hazy summer days at the lake, swimming, water skiing, boating, fishing, and just water, being near the water, the Mm -hmm. sound of the water lapping and against the shore and like just all of these things. But also it was very intensely a family time. Like the school year felt different and busy and everybody had a lot more going on. Whereas like, even though my parents were working at the marina, it was like we would go in and out of the marina and there was like a lot more just like play. Mm -hmm. That's definitely one of mine. I would say music was one Mm. of mine growing up. Somebody gave me a kid's keyboard at age five and I remember just being absorbed in it and playing music from it and dancing around to the music, which relates to an island that is forthcoming. But I took piano lessons from age like eight to 18 I just remember feeling like something about reading music, playing music. It just clicked. Like it was so natural in the way that sports were absolutely not. (laughs) 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 Like I vividly remember being on a softball team one year and thinking the other kids clearly have some kind of natural talent that I do not. Like this doesn't make any sense to me. I would come home from school and look forward to practicing piano Mm. and Later on, played mallet percussion and was in band at school. But I really miss sitting down and playing something that's like technically challenging and beautiful. And I know that 
it brought a lot of joy to like my grandparents when we would visit them. Mm. I would sit down and play for them. And so I would say music is definitely one of the islands. One of my islands is sports. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> it's just, it's very funny because it's like all of the exact things that you would say only like the opposite. Cause I'm like, music was very much not one of my islands and I really wanted it to be. And I watched all the kids like you who were so good at their music. It's and not I was a like, competition. Why am I not good at that? <laughs> I mean, funnily enough, I almost named this island Competition Island because I felt like it was like Mm. part of it was the competition is what I liked about the sports. Yes. But it was the sports, too. I mean, I just liked being active. I loved playing sports. Which sports? As a kid, it was like lots of different sports, you know, like Mm. it was like whatever was in PE. But I also knew that like once I got to middle school and high school or as we called it, junior high and high school. Mm -hmm it would be volleyball and basketball because that's what we had available for girls to play. So you just wanted to play whatever sport was available. Anything. And that was where my energy was funneled toward was volleyball and basketball. But I just loved it. I still love it. I love organized sports. What? If there are lawn <laughs> games available to me at a picnic, oh. I will be playing them. If there's yes any kind of sport on option, I will attempt to play it whether I'd be good at it or not. I just really enjoy organized sports. And I miss that maybe in the way that you miss playing an instrument. I don't know. I'm really happy for you. I'm happy for you. (laughs) I'm so glad we both have a passion. Okay. So my third island, it is related to the goofball island from Inside Out. Mm. But it is very specifically about entertaining other people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not just silliness. I mean, that's for sure there. I just learned from a very young age that it felt so good to make my parents laugh. Mm. Like something about being the center of attention Mm -hmm. (laughs) and like getting up and like performing in an entertaining, funny way felt really good. Mm -hmm. And there's absolutely like oldest child energy there. And like, I resent this young baby who's very cute and taking away the attention. (laughs) How do I retain Uh it? But Mm -hmm. I feel like that entertainment island, I feel that that is Mm. consistent. Hopefully not as obnoxious as a five-year-old dancing around the living room. But maybe not as adorable either. (laughs) Touche. In a similar vein, honestly, maybe even less adorable though, my fourth island is teacher's pet island Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is just that I needed adult validation so badly (laughs) and it was like everywhere I was if it was at school I was the teacher's pet if it was at church I was like how do I memorize all the bible verses and get all the gold stars if it was in sports how do I you know it was just like in every place that I could be yes I was like I need adults to think I'm great (laughs) and I am certain that that was really annoying. (laughs) I also have a reading island, which probably doesn't surprise you either. No. When we moved from California to Ohio eventually, and then we stayed there until I was like done with high school, we lived right behind the local public library. So my brother and I could walk like it was 300 feet between our house and the library. And I just, 
vividly remember going back and forth all throughout the summer, just picking out Judy Bloom books, definitely mm. Babysitter's Club, Sweet Valley High. Oh, yeah. I loved Anne of Green Gables. Mm-hmm. I loved Little Women Later, but also Little House on the Prairie. There was like a box set of those books that belonged to my mom and her sister growing up. And I wrote on the box set like, these belong to the Beatty women. We will cherish them forever. Oh, And I think some of it was probably related to being an oldest and being alone a lot and just really almost always would rather like go to my room and read Mm -hmm. than go outside and do something active and becoming very attached to particular characters. Mm -hmm. Yes. I have a feeling that our last island might be similar to boys. I guess I would call it church. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Mm, there were some boys at church, but yes, (laughs) Jesus Island. Oh, that's better. Jesus Island. Yeah as anyone who's listened to this podcast even once knows, like that was like a big part of both of our childhoods. And for me, it was like church was literally next door and we spent a lot of time there and I really loved it. Both of us had a Jesus Island, if you will. This definitely checks out. Later on, we'll camp out on Jesus Island and talk some more about the core memories that defined our spirituality as kids and continue to today. We'll also talk to author Esau McCauley about his new memoir, which is all about his own spiritual heritage and ours and how our families shape our faith as kids and adults. The hardest part of not just writing that book, but my entire adult intellectual life and spiritual life is trying to find the freedom to be myself and not to be anybody's puppet. That nobody owned me or owned my voice. And the frustrating part about that is I'm not sure that I've escaped yet. But first, let's give a shout out to the organization that makes this all possible. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. From encyclicals to exvangelicals, RNS is here for it all. And if you like what we're doing at Saved by the City, let us know. Throw us a rating or review. It goes a long way toward helping get the word out about the show. This season on the podcast, we're doing something new. We want to hear from you, literally. Mm-hmm. We're starting the Saved by the City hotline. And this week, the prompt is, we've talked a lot about singleness. We've talked a lot about dating on the podcast. We've talked a lot about the strange men of New York City. This week, we want you to tell us your weirdest date story. Nothing is off limits. We'd love to play clips of your weirdest states on a future episode of the podcast this season. Go to speakpipe.com. That's S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E.com slash save by the city. That's speakpipe.com slash save by the city. One of you, if you leave a message, will be receiving a piece of Saved by the City swag. Mm. Well, you can also email us at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. We still would love to hear from you that way too. Hey there, curious minds. Get ready to embark on a unique journey at the crossroads of money and religion with our new podcast, Money Meet Meeting. The seductive effect of money, we think it can do the work that God does because there's something about money that does that. It's wild. 
I'm Amber Hacker. And I'm Tom Levinson. Tune in for a blend of wisdom and levity as we decode the path to a more meaningful relationship with money. I think giving, and this is a little crass, but I feel like it's the ultimate middle finger to money. It's liberating to give some away. This podcast is your gateway to a vibrant and thought-provoking exploration of the interconnectedness of wealth and spirituality. Join us as we unravel the surprising influence of ancient wisdom on modern finances. Faith pervades people's lives and our society. And because money is such an important part of people's lives, exploring that intersection of faith and money, I think is super, super interesting. Get ready to be informed, entertained, and inspired to transform your financial outlook with Money Meet Meaning. Available wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so we're on your Jesus Island, Roxy. Right. What is an earliest, most potent memory of young Christian Roxy? It's an overlap with my reading island. Yes. (laughs) Of course. I was reading historical novel by Francine Rivers called The Mark of the Lion, or I think it was the series was called The Mark of the Lion. Mm -hmm. There were three of them, and they were based ancient Rome, like when Jerusalem had fallen and Mm -hmm. the Jews were like taken to Rome and were enslaved and our main character is a Jewish girl who's converted to Christianity and she's enslaved by this Roman family and over this course of the series you know grows up and falls in love with one of them and also like tries to convert everybody and also is like thrown to the lions at one point but survives and anyway her faith was so strong she was like my role model and I have this memory of reading this book And being so inspired and thinking, I just want to be like her, falling on my knees and like rededicating my life to Jesus or something. Anyway, that was a big moment. And I remember it because it's like, I really feel like I changed after that in the way that I thought about my faith or approached it. Why do you think it's embarrassing? Because it really was just like so sincere. I'm sure I would not feel the same way about them now. You know, there were ways that it, you know, like that's the whole martyr narrative, the whole like historical romance aspect of it and how like there was this conversion. She fell in love with this man who was also like the son of her enslaver. He fell in love with her too, but she refused him because he wasn't a Christian and blah, blah. I don't know. It was just so much, right? Sure. And I think just that that became this like, tentpole in my Mm -hmm. idea of what it meant to be a Christian. And, you know, there was a lot in in there about like, I I needed to work to convert people. And we think this is bad. (laughs) No, it just was very, very intensely front and center for me for a long time and 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 how I dated felt a lot of guilt again as we've discussed about my first boyfriend not being like on fire a Christian or really on fire but I think it was peace with a lot of other aspects of how I grew up in that tradition at that particular time which was a lot about how how radical and how central your faith had to be and how self-sacrificial it had to be and all of that. So anyway, it was a real moment for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I know that I like had moments of intense rededication 
at age like 15, 16, 17. (laughs) There was Mm -hmm. something about hearing someone speak or being in a worship service or hearing a missionary and like wanting to kind of capture that Mm -hmm. new dedication in like a moment, you know? Mm -hmm. So in seventh and eighth grade, I was bullied pretty awfully on the bus, like for a whole year. And, you know, being a 12 year old and a 13 year old is probably just like one of the worst times to be a human being. Definitely. And it was around this time that our parents, our family was getting really involved in this church. And I was like, kind of becoming newly interested in faith. I didn't know what to do about this bullying situation. My parents knew they didn't know what to do. The bus driver didn't really seem to care. I remember feeling so helpless and scared. And this one day, I was like, okay, anytime I think about this, I'm just going to pray and ask God to take care of it. You can maybe know where this is going. That day, coming home from school on the bus, this girl who was my bully started up, and the bus driver called her to the front and wrote up her name and, like, kicked her off the bus permanently. Wow. That's powerful as a kid, for sure. And I, of course, can complicate the narrative that I understood it to be at the time, which was just that, like, I had prayed (laughs) about this hard thing and God had answered my prayer. Yeah. Like, I don't know what to think about it, but I absolutely know that that cemented something Mm-hmm. very real that you could have a personal encounter with God and that God cares in a personal way. So that would be on my Jesus Island. I think camp is on my Jesus Island, which would be going <laughs> backwards chronologically. But when I was a kid, I went to, you know, like a Christian sleepaway camp for a week every summer in the mountains in Colorado. And I loved it. I loved Mm. being outdoors. I loved all the activities. There was a lot of organized sports. We got to do like a zip line and some horseback riding and archery. But also we had chapel and we had these like every night we would sit around a fire, a big campfire, and we would sing worship songs, you know. And I felt there at camp in the chapel and during the Bible studies and at the worship time around the campfire, like, like this was my faith. Mm. It felt like a a time of really owning something because I wasn't with my parents. I wasn't at my hometown church. I wasn't being told by adults I respected or something that I was supposed to do this. I mean, I think that's what camp is supposed to do for kids anyway, like whatever kind of camp it is, even if it's like, look at you, you learned how to build a fire. But I felt like this was my faith. And I had a lot of, you know, those, those moments around the campfire worshiping where I, oh, you know, I just felt all the feels about God and about Jesus and about eternity and heaven and all that stuff. So Better is one day in your I court. know. <laughs> yeah. I think I think this was pre that, but that's how I felt. Yeah, for sure. There is something about being away from like family in your home church that is I don't know, I, I guess if you had a cynical view, it'd be like psychologically manipulative. But 
put more positively, that allows kids to, like, experience something for themselves. Mm-hmm. It seems like camp right. is a big factor for a lot of people who grew up in the church. So prior to the aforementioned, you know, miracle on the bus involving the bully, that's the paraphrase from scripture. <laughs> we went to church. We went to this, like, very traditional United Methodist church. And our Sunday school teacher, I, w- I had to have been like eight or nine, was just like helping us imagine what it would be like if we were praying and Jesus just appeared to us. Like, what would you feel if Jesus just appeared to you suddenly? <laughs> and obviously, like the proper correct answer was like, we would feel amazed and we would mm-hmm. bow down and we would feel... And this idea of Jesus just like popping it up out of nowhere, like mm-hmm. got into my little anxious brain. <laughs> like I remember praying after that, Jesus, don't just suddenly appear to me. <laughs> Please ring a bell or something. Like, you gotta give me a heads up. <laughs> I have one last core memory that is a good one that is not scary sort of the opposite, but I was a little older cause I was driving. I can picture where I was. I was on, you know, a road out in the country. It was beautiful. It was sunny. There were wheat fields, the whole thing. I don't quite remember what prompted this. I would describe it as a mystical experience, but mm. I had this feeling of like being up in my head and then descending into my heart and feeling this overwhelming like sense of joy and peace and of being loved. And it was so powerful. I had to like pull over cause I started crying, but I knew it was God. Mm. And, and for years after that, I could still access it. And like, if I, it was like, there was this way I could like mm. go from my head to my heart and it would never quite like exactly what it was that time. But it was like, I knew there was this, power in me that was based on how God felt about me. And I think that that experience carried me from Mm. childhood faith to adult faith. That's so good. So vivid. It's a very precious memory to me. I had an experience when I was (laughs) dating the atheist boyfriend in high school, and Mm -hmm. I felt very far from God, actually. That was Mm -hmm. the framework that I was operating from it. Like I had a lot of doubt and a lot of concern and our family was at a park and I was sitting in a, like a lawn chair reading and looked up and there was a cloud that seemed to move in such a way that was like a, like a wave coming down and pouring over me. That was the image that came to Mm -hmm. mind. And I vividly recognized this was like God's love being present and overpowering and Hmm. provided so much like security because I think I had such inner turmoil. There's like a tension in a lot of these memories. We remember them as being very like real and palpable. And we also have this almost adult distance from them. But at the very least, I feel... I feel grateful for the vividness of those memories. Like, I don't always know what to make of some of them. Mm -hmm. 
they're still part of like my story. They're still part of my Jesus Island. And my Jesus Island has stayed intact. <laughs> can you keep making core memories as an adult? <laughs> Surely we can. Our guest today shares a lot in his new book about some core childhood faith memories. He also knows what it's like to think about those memories differently than how he did in the moment. Isa McCauley is a professor of New Testament at Wheaton College, a New York Times columnist and author most recently of the excellent memoir, How Far to the Promised Land, One Black Family's Story of Hope and Survival in the American South. It's great to have you on, Isa. Hi, Isa. Thank you. And I said it before the podcast, and I'll say it again. I think that you all do a great job. I like your writing, your voice, everything. So thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited. Aww. Well, it's great to have you here. Thank you. So your new book, How Far to the Promised Land, is just really well done, so well written. It's very personal. It is a memoir. Because of that, it includes a lot of details about your family, generations that came before you, and there are some painful details in there. So how did you decide as you were writing what to include and how much to reveal? Because you talk about not wanting to play into stereotypes of Black Americans being defined by trauma. How did you decide how to navigate that? Can I tell you, like, what actually happened? Can I tell you the truth? Good. (laughs) We prefer the truth. We encourage that here. (laughs) So you have to understand that How Far to the Promised Land was written during the pandemic. Mm. A significant part of it, it was begun during the height of the pandemic. And at the time, my wife was deployed in the United States Navy. So she was gone. Me and my four children were at home by ourselves. And my daughter used to pray. You pray with your kids before you go to bed. My youngest daughter, I think she's like three or four at the time, she would pray every night. I hope that mom and dad don't get COVID and die. Mm. And that nobody gets COVID and dies. And when you have like children, one of the things that you try to do, you try to protect them from like the darkness of the world. One of the things that the pandemic did is that it like, it broke all the boundaries. You know, you couldn't hide the ugly parts of reality from even tiny children. And so I started to talk to my daughter about death. We had people that we knew who passed away from COVID. One of the ways I talked to her, I said, like, I've been through things before in my life and I've survived them. And so that truth telling between the four children that I have was the first time I was able to use my life and the things that I had gone through as an encouragement for people. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of gave me the emotional and intellectual freedom and spiritual freedom to begin to talk about those things in a new and more kind of honest way. And so that was actually the beginning of it. It's like sitting down and talking to my children about what I've been through in the past and realizing the sanitized life that I had presented to them wasn't true. Mm-hmm. And that kind of gave me permission when I sat down to eventually write Half Off to the Promised Land was to do the same thing for the audience, which is to tell the audience the truth. So that's the real reason. I know it's like dark, but it's like, Mm -hmm. it's true. Like people are dying and death makes you reflective. The central mode of like what happens that that drives the narrative is my father dying in 2017 unexpectedly. It was kind of an unexpected death that was random, just like COVID, right? People would just die. And so if you think of it as like a melancholy, hopeful book, Mm. it doesn't recount the events of the pandemic, but the vulnerability of the pandemic and how we were feeling at the time, I think informed some of the writing. I love the way that you talked about like praying 
directly to God in various moments of your life, for, like crying out to God yeah. for help in moments of crisis, of fear, things were happening in your family that were really difficult and hard for a child to even begin to process. So talk a little bit about your earliest faith formation. Who would you say kind of most set you on this faith path? I'm glad that you asked me about the prayers because a lot of the prayers in the book don't get answered. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Not in the way that we would expect. Like I asked you something from God and he doesn't give me the thing that I want immediately. And the reason I did it that way is because I wanted it to feel authentic. And I feel like sometimes stories that have a deeply spiritual component is like God is like the plot device that fixes everything at every point. Mm. And maybe it's just a perception and it's not reality. But there's certain people whom Christianity just comes naturally. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It feels like all of the kind of check marks that you're supposed to get at certain points in your life, they just hit them. You know, it's almost like you're in a race. You have to run like an eight-minute mile, and you got to do two minutes or whatever each mile. Some people could just do that, and I'm just like dying trying to get through the first lap. Mm-hmm. And so what I try to communicate in the book is the complexity of my spiritual life which is mm. dealing with disappointment and hope at the exact same time. Mm-hmm. And the real stars of the book, the heroes of the book, were actually the black women. These are the women going back from my great-grandmother, Sophia, who people will meet, to my grandmother, Laura, Laurianne, or Laurie May, and then my mom, Laurianne. These are the people who, they had difficult lives, and things didn't always go their way. And for them, and if you let them tell the story, it was God. And their spirituality was a little bit different than like the way that I initially conceived of God, which I initially conceived of God is you jump in, you fix all of the problems. And their spirituality was more like, God, get me through the end of this day. Hmm. Part of the book was me over the long scope of my childhood through to adulthood, beginning to appreciate that form of spirituality and see the power in it. And so the real hero, the hero's hero of the book is my mom, the person to whom the book is dedicated. She comes across as someone whose faith challenges me a lot. Speaking of your mom, you tell the story about in high school having the sort of career-ending injury in football and how you were on the field praying to God to heal you, and your mom was praying something very different. (laughs) Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about this way that we pray amid suffering and how how we approach God and what we're asking for. I grew up in the black church, and they call it the roll call that is really common in black preaching, where they just kind of go throughout the biblical narrative and just recount miracles in the same way that David beat Goliath, the same way that Daniel and the lion's den and three men in the furnace and like all of these dramatic events. And they say, that's the kind of God we serve. So when I got injured... I had torn three ligaments in my knee, and that seemed to signal the end of my opportunities to go to college. Mm. And in my brain, I thought, wow, wouldn't it be a really cool testimony if I can say, God knit my knee together just like they did in the roll call? Mm -hmm. It's almost like when you have that love-induced delirium where you just, like, are convinced that what you think is going to happen is going to happen until you meet face-to-face with, like, real reality. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so... Mm -hmm. I really was convinced that God was going to fix my knee and I was going to miraculously heal and just return to the football field as like, I don't know, some triumphant warrior or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like in my brain, it was like a movie because I have the crutches and I said, okay, I'm going to 
put the crutches down because I didn't want the miracle to kick off too early. I had the crutches to get standing up. <laughs> I took the step of faith. <laughs> I took the step of faith and my knee completely oh, buckled. And I was like laying there. And so that was my miracle. That was what I was praying for. And we didn't have insurance hmm. as uh, a family. Mm-hmm. So after that miracle doesn't take place, or maybe even before that, I'm like, this is not contemporaneous. There's not cut scene. My mom's over there in the next room. She just told me about it later on. So when I was praying to God to heal my knee miraculously, my mom was praying for a way that for us to have the surgery. Mm-hmm. That was her prayer, like something very practical. We don't have money. We don't have any insurance. He needs surgery. And that's the prayer that actually gets answered. That mm-hmm. there is someone who agrees to do the surgery on my knee for free. Oh, wow. Which is miraculous in its own way, right? But mm, it doesn't fix right. the problem, right? I still have, you know, a surgically prepared knee that was supposed to take 9 to 12 months to recover from in order for me to return to sports, which I thought at the time was my trip to college. I ended up getting to college a different way. But, like, those kinds of ideas of we have in our head a construction of what we think God might be up to based upon our preferred future it has never worked that way, possibly in my family's history. Mm-hmm. It's manna in the wilderness, like enough for the day. You write about your time at Sewanee or University of the South, yeah. starting to adopt the intellectual habits of the white students around you, specifically white progressive students. Yeah. And what you perceived was a kind of disdain toward or distrust of organized religion. You know, organized religion is a tool of oppression. So your experience in that time, there was a lot that you gleaned from it, but there was a severing Mm. between the intellect and the faith. Yeah. How did you end up bringing those two together? Because faith and intellect are obviously so central to what you do today. I think it's really hard to talk about this aspect of my own spiritual and intellectual development because for a lot of majority culture readers, there's just that kind of a lack of, I call it imagination, to be honest. If you come from a black context and you enter into a majority white space, like the battle lines are already drawn. Like there's what we call the mainline tradition and what we call evangelicalism. And you just had to pick whichever one that you wanted. And... When you say stuff like, I didn't want to be completely immersed in the mainline world, people hear that as some kind of like black conservatism. Like, oh, he wanted to be like Thomas Sowell. Like, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about that form of rebellion where you rebel against mm-hmm. the mainline tradition by becoming a black conservative. That's not what I'm talking about at all. What Swanee wanted me to do was to be kind of a socially and politically and theologically progressive intellectual who condemned the racism of the right. That's what they wanted. Mm. Even condemned the racism of the left. They wanted me to speak about racism. That was my job, to critique the system. Now, the tricky part of it was the system was racist, (laughs) right? Mm. And there's parts of the right that was racist and left. And so I felt like there was no way for me not to play the role that was given to me. There was a script there was a that script. you had not determined, but you kind of found yourself being expected to follow. Yeah. A lot of the things that they told me that I had to say or do only through their intellectual and spiritual lens I already had in the black church. Uh. Like I already knew racism was bad. Uh-huh. Right? I already knew that there were white Christians who used Christianity to oppress black people. 
the same kinds of complexity and diversity in white Christian spaces existed in black Christian spaces. And I was much more drawn to that debate in black Christian spaces as to how we reconcile God and justice and racism. Mm -hmm. And so what I felt like I needed to do was to pick up a particular strand of the black Christian tradition. (laughs) Because, and this is, sorry, this may be nerdy for the podcast, but even white progressives pick up particular strands of the black tradition and call Mm -hmm. it the black tradition. In other words, everybody outside of our community are taking parts of our community and using it for their own purposes. Mm And so I didn't feel like I was free unless I could articulate my critiques through the lens of what made sense to me. And so I felt like there was an entire path laid out for me that I can perceive that I just wanted no part of. And Mm -hmm. the hardest part of not just writing that book, but my, my entire kind of adult intellectual life and spiritual life is trying to find the freedom to be myself. And Mm -hmm. not to be anybody's puppet. Mm -hmm. What I was talking about at Swanee was the beginning of that rebellion. That nobody owned me or owned my voice. And the frustrating part about that is I'm not sure that I've escaped yet. (laughs) I am curious with your New York Times column and maybe this book too. But who do you feel right now like you're wanting to talk to the most? Like, who are you hoping to reach with your voice and these conversations that you're having on the, in this very public square? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because it presumes like a plan. <laughs> 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 I guess when I first started writing for the New York Times, I thought that it was my job to, to kind of tell these big, huge, overarching stories that kind of shape mm. and influence the culture. But if anybody's actually paid attention to my writing over the last two to three years, they've actually become quite intimate and small stories. Mm-hmm. And I felt called to be authentic to myself and to the community that shaped me. It's kind of a big experiment. Maybe this is indulgent of me. I feel like there is a huge audience through the never-ending discussion and analysis of evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to say the evangelicalism, that it shouldn't be critiqued. I'm not saying any of those things. We've indulged in that habit we a few might times. Have. It might have been never-ending. I'm not saying that those things are bad. What I'm saying is when I am in black spaces, we don't talk about evangelicalism all of the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so what I've attempted to do was center authentically African-American Christian stories as often as I could. Mm. And to talk about our wrestling with God when we're in the center of the narrative. I don't know the name of that test that they have for movies. The Bechdel test? Where there's two women not talking about a man. Uh Mm -hmm. I would love to do that test on articles. People (laughs) should take this clip out and run this across the internet. Do that test and do it with evangelicalism. Two people talking about Christianity in America that doesn't have an evangelical involved in it. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I might do an article about Watch Night. Because that was a significant aspect of the black community when we celebrated emancipation. I may write about MLK's last Sunday sermon. I might write about on 4th of July, the three 4th of July speeches that Frederick Douglass gave over the course of his life. It's like our history and story is often only interesting in so much as it's like tied to our battles with evangelicalism. But my mm-hmm. childhood was not defined by a battle with evangelicalism. Right. I guess what I'm trying to do is to say... And this sounds cheesy. Black stories matter. 
mm-hmm. and that our walk with God is important. Now, the way that, race, that relates to how far to the promised land is people kind of know what to do with the black race book. Yeah, yeah. None of these things are bad. I said people know what to do with that book. I think people even know about like race and poverty, but the intersection of race, poverty, and the question of God, can I be all of those things at once? Can we handle a story where the conclusion isn't, oh, the person then kind of realizes as a black intellectual that Christianity is oppressive and that there's kind of a religious nostalgia that still lingers. Mm -hmm. For me, the journey towards healing was a journey back towards beginnings. I know a lot of African-Americans who don't share my exact story, but who wrestled with God in the context of racism and poverty. Mm-hmm. And a poverty that is rooted in the ongoing structures of oppression that stretch over generations. So if you think about C.S. Lewis and Surprised by Joy and the intellectual journey that he went on, or if you think about the Seven Story Mountain and how these respected white men made this journey towards spiritual epiphanies, well, that's not my story where I just sat around right. and thought about God. My story is I'm wrestling with God in the context of the post-crack epidemic 1990s. Mm-hmm. And can you write a spiritual story that's set in that place? Can a young black kid who's listening to hip-hop also be struggling to make sense of God? And that not be a black story, but be a profoundly human story and a Christian story as well. That was a good, a good answer to a question I wasn't <laughs> sure if I should ask. So <laughs> It's okay. It's okay. So... You write about hearing about the murder of Rodney King and your mom kind of sitting down and she gave you the talk. And it's a talk that many Black Americans growing up here. I was really curious if or how you have given the talk to your, your own children. Yeah. My mom still gives me the talk. Like, to this Mm. day, we went back down to the South this summer. And my mom would still talk to me like, what time are you leaving? Call me whenever you get there. When you get to the hotel, like, don't stop. You know, like the stuff that you see in the story. What I was trying to show without slipping into kind of nihilistic despair is that following the rules doesn't lead to success. Mm-hmm. And my mom gave me all of these rules about how to engage with the police And it didn't work. Mm -hmm. I still found myself in situations. And I survived because of the providence of God, even though I did what my mom told me. Now, one of the interesting things about this, and this is where I started talking about not being able to shield your kids. Because the context of the pandemic was also, if you remember, that was like George Floyd summer was leading into it. Mm -hmm. And like the things that kind of happened after that. And I did. I had to sit down and talk to my my children my son in particular he's the oldest he's 15 now he has like a very clear sense of justice or fairness Mm -hmm. and he struggles in just in life when things aren't equal it's hard for me to say to him is that son there will come a time in your life where the rightness or the wrongness of someone's actions does not matter because you don't have the power And that you're going to have to potentially swallow your pride to make it back home. And justice will have to come later. We live in a majority white space. And I say to him, like, if you go out and you hang out with your buddies, 
Like, what they do and what you do can't be the same. And if they decide they want to go and do something stupid, you need to do the black calculation of that. As a parent of black children, you just wait for that moment when they realize that they're black. Not that they are racially conscious. I'm not talking about that. What I talk about in the book are the two definitions of black. Mm-hmm. The definition of black that exists within the community and the definition of black that sometimes ex- exists without, outside of the community. And what you fear is, as a parent, your children coming home traumatized by encountering that other definition of black. Mm-hmm. And so the struggle that you have as a black parent is, do I tell them that there's another version of black that exists out in the world so they know how to engage it? Or do I wait for the world to hurt them and then help them process it? My mom, she was on the, I'm going to tell you how the world sometimes treats you and views you. I followed her advice, but I tried to infuse it with like a little bit of hopefulness. One of the things that that I was really worried about was that one day my children were going to hit their adult years. They kind of go through that angst and that anger and that frustration that we kind of see when we see the world is messed up in our 20s and our 30s. And I had this idea, maybe it was silly, that they were going to turn to their father and say, Dad, what did you do? And I had this image, this clear image in my head starting in 2020. Well, I just handed them everything that I wrote. Mm. And I said, this is what I tried to do. All that your dad can do. I'm not an activist. I'm not a politician. All I can do is write. Mm-hmm. And so I can put words on paper that hopefully move society forward. Part of the reason that I write is so that I might do a small part in creating a world that traumatizes my children a little bit less. Thank you so much, Esau. This was Yeah, it was really great to talk to you. Oh, you're welcome. Saved by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Windham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.